0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Brad. I'm the lead pastor at the River, and I know Michelle just led an amen, but I'd like to stick a crowbar in and open up space for one more prayer. Uh, In my social media feed on Facebook, an image came up um, that was sort of a spur for prayer for the Middle East and for all of the incredible suffering that's going on there. And I know in whatever way uh, you take in your news this is uh, It's just in the air. It's in our hearts and minds in a variety of ways. Um, it's impossible in so many ways for us to get our minds around and to try to trace the causes or the possibilities for what one might even hope for. Uh, but when we come to worship in this space, it's important in the Christian perspective to say that we don't leave the problems of the world behind. Uh, we worship the God who sees all things, who hears the cry of the suffering. And we are invited to bring all of who we are, all of our concerns into the presence of God. So I'd like for us to stand um, and lead us in prayer for the Middle East. As you look at the image, um, let it be maybe a prophetic call um, to stir in us an imagination. That um, That affection and peace are possible in the presence of God, and as I pray for that, um, you know, this is a prayer for just human human connection. so if you're, if you're with someone that you feel safe with, I'd invite you to uh, take, take one another's hands. Uh, Silicon Valley is such a um, fractured, isolating place sometimes and Today is a day in which we um, need to understand the other is human. And so we pray in the presence of God. God, we lament the incredible loss of life that we see and read about in the news. And how much of that life is young life, the lives of children. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Lord, comfort all who are suffering today uh, in the Middle East. And we pray that you would move in strength to restrain uh, the violence of angry and even wicked people. Lord, intervene in ways that we can't possibly understand. Lord, mobilize people of goodwill, people of faith, people of many faiths, people who are simply acting as providers. Uh, grant courage and um, provision for all who are mobilized to bring healing in that space. Make a way where there seems to be no way for peace and for justice in the world. And we pray for our hearts in these days. Busy as we are, feeling helpless as we do, help us to lean into the work of prayer and in a season of global suffering to Let your spirit tenderize our hearts. We welcome your presence today, and we say you are our hope. You are our hope, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat where you are now. Today's teaching is not about Palestine and Israel. Uh, I wouldn't have the expertise to do that. So if you know someone who can give a message about that, Let us know about it, and we'll make a space for it. But today's teaching is not not about Israel and Palestine, in the sense that as we travel through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest recorded teaching, we come to a place where he talks about our vocation as followers of Jesus to form and then to sustain relationships of shalom. Shalom, that Hebrew word that... um, is a grand picture of a holistic peace, a peace of body, mind, soul, and spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is a progressively unfolding vision about the possibilities of living as we access the presence of God, or in religious language, as we live in the kingdom of God. And as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, we see that the... Presence of God touches every arena of our lives. Jesus begins with words of blessing, blessing that extends to the most unexpected people in the most difficult of circumstances, and that's good news. And if you feel disconnected from the blessing of Jesus in this season of your life, I just want to say aloud that his eye is upon you. And in the name of Jesus, I speak his blessing over you and pray that it would penetrate the the veil of confusion and darkness that we often feel. Jesus pronounces blessing uh, generously, blessing to every kind of person. And then he speaks a word of transformation to every aspect of our lives, to the deepest drives of the human person, to our anger and our desire and our longing for revenge when things that are bad have happened to us. Jesus also speaks to the objects of our affection, the objects of our hope, those things that we most treasure. And Lindsay gave an awesome message last week about how what we hope for really has a lot to do with our statement of sanity in the presence of God. And then in chapter 7, Jesus takes us to a place where he is asserting to us that life in the presence of God will invariably change our relational sphere, it will make us people with new capacities and new imagination to make peace in a world of violence. So there is a word of good news here that in the presence of Christ, in the fullness of his grace, in the tenderness of his mercy, you and I have infinite resources for the formation of soul-satisfying and healing relationships. That is the good news, and we are all invited to enter into that presence, to access those resources, and to live in a way that is healing for the world around us. But there is a humbling news that goes along with it as well. And the humbling news that is strewn all throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that in a sin-soaked world, We all have learned patterns of thought and behavior that undo peace in the world. Christ is wanting to make shalom in the world. In every single one of us, and I do mean every single one of us, the best of us and the least of us, we all have ways of thinking about the world and reacting in the world and saying things that undo the peace that Christ intends to bring. And so this message is about how to move with Christ in forming relationships of shalom. I know we started with the image of the Middle East and the great challenges of violence and the possibilities of peace there. I want us to go from that enormous picture into something far more manageable but just as challenging your own relational circle, your sphere of actual influence. So you might think about uh, your household, your housemates, your family, uh, the spouse that you live alongside, your friendship circle, and if you belong to one, a river small group or the small group of the church that you are going to. Let's hold these relationships in our heart Let the light of the Holy Spirit shine in our hearts as we consider the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to take things section by section uh, just to try to help us track with the logic of Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get... And the measure you give, the amount of judgment you give, will correspond to the measure, the amount of judgment that you get. Jesus is saying here that in the kingdom of God, in the presence of Christ, it is possible for us to learn to live alongside one another as people who are increasingly capable Of refraining from judging one another. And he is encouraging us to take this pathway of non-judgment out of our own self-interest. You don't have to be a particularly virtuous soul to get what he's saying here. That if you judge other people that judgment is going to come back on you. The measure you give will be the measure you get. You may be right, or you may feel righteous in your judgment of another person. I guess that's why we do it, because we feel, we feel right. We're sure we're right. But Jesus is saying here that even if you have a thread of righteousness there, you should refrain from participating in a spirit of judgment because you will participate in increasing a vicious cycle of judgment that will suck you down like a, I don't know, a whirlpool that just, it will draw you under. Jesus says, do not do it. Do not do it. Your life will be heavier. Your life will be harder for having entered into a world of judgment. Now, of course, there is a kind of judgment that is an appropriate kind of judgment In the verses that follow, which we won't get to today, Jesus will tell his disciples, his followers, that they need to be able to discern good teachers from bad teachers. There's good leaders and bad leaders. We need to discern who it is we should be listening to and who it is that we should be following. So we are not, in the name of Jesus, to be like Homer Simpson, bumbling through the world, you know, uncertain about what's good and bad. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But he is saying that there is a kind of judgment that is distinctly and profoundly unholy. There's a paraphrase of the New Testament called the J.B. Phillips. It translates judge not simply as do not be unnecessarily critical. As someone who can have a critical edge, I find that to be like a convicting phrase. It would just be to say that if You're moving through your week, and you increasingly are finding that your attention is given to all the things that other people are doing that are wrong in the world. You should, like, take a moment and reflect. And Jesus might say to you, don't get sucked down that pathway. It's not that you don't have anything right to say about that. That's the trap of the thing. You may have something right to say about it. But if you give your heart in that space, you will get sucked under by it. Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher from the University of Southern California, who wrote in most of the late 20th century, said that judgment is like a knife. It's like a knife that cuts to the core of a person. And when we're operating in a spirit of judgment, one of the things that happens is that we slide from discernment about right action and wrong action, and move into an assessment of the value of another human being. You know what I mean? You can feel that when, when you've done it, <laughs> you know? When we do it, we know that there's a logic that, that makes sense in our minds, but there is an energy of being that is a violent energy of being. And Jesus says, stay away from that with all the energy you could possibly find. It is dark. It is not good for you. You can follow this thread in human history when there are uh, genocides, great violence in the world. There is in Nazi Germany and in Rwanda and now in the Middle East, there are public pronouncements that dehumanize the other tribe. They are like cockroaches. They're like animals. And if someone is not really human, and they're like an animal, it's just a half step away from justifying whatever it is that you might want to do to them. So easier to see in the news. I want us to consider the possibility that there are more moderated ways in which we dehumanize others. Uh, Just so you know, I'm not talking about anyone here, anyone in our church you know, but as a pastor, I go to pastor's gatherings, and pastors, like, are judgmental people towards one another, you know, and I'm, like, one of those people, so I often come home from these things, and I have this conversation with my family, in which I'll say, like, oh, I met this person, and, like, I really didn't think I would like them, you know, I I thought I would be, like, not, not, you know, not going to be part of my group, and as I sat down and had lunch with them, I actually really liked them, I found (laughs) myself really surprised, and, uh, you know, I think they could be a friend. I I think I could learn a lot from this person. I think we could hang out and do fun things together. And my family will say, like, well, why did you think you wouldn't like them? And I, I think, like, I don't know, in an honest moment, they went to this school, you know, and it's, that school teaches this way of thinking about things, and this school is like a private school full of uppity, you know, whatever kinds of people, and so that person was from this part of the country and they spoke with this sort of like dialect and I kind of associate that with this sort of narrower person. I just didn't think I would like them. And then people in my family say, you should stop judging people. You know, it's like, you're pastor, you should know these things. In the body of Christ, in in churches, it is notoriously difficult, I think, for us to Sustain life and ongoing communities of friends and small groups. And there are all kinds of things that can get in our way that we can trace back to this idea of judgment. So it has happened once or twice in the last handful of years that people judge one another for holding political views. Once or twice, that's happened, you know? And uh, at that stage where people start to have children, uh, people can kind of judge one another about parenting styles. Well, I need to set some limits, you know. I need to give a direction. We're awfully authoritarian over there, you know. And it's like parents can feel very tense with one another. And there is, there is a need and a desire in the most basic of ways in the body of Christ to consider, is there a violence I'm doing in the way I look at someone? Well, what would it mean for us to extend grace to one another, the grace and peace of Jesus Christ? The remedy, Jesus says in verse 3, maybe you've heard these words before or something like it. Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? This is Jesus' attempt at humor, a big, huge log in a person's eye. How can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye? Let me help you with that little speck in your eye. How can you do that when a log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. I think uh, we might call this Jesus uh, Shalom Protocol. (laughs) You know, the the Jesus plan, the Jesus priorities are quite simply to deal with your own stuff first. Deal with your own stuff first. You might be right about someone, but you never be helpful to them if you don't deal with your own stuff first. It's knee-jerk reaction. We have a visceral gut reaction to deal with someone else's stuff first, and maybe there are occasions upon which that is like an important thing to do if they're causing danger to someone. But in general, Jesus is saying, deal with your own stuff first. There's a curtain, kind, a certain kind of way we need to be in the world if we're going to do the dangerous work of helping someone pull a speck out of their eye. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that uh, there's a certain kind of spiritual maturity, a certain kind of person that is controlled by the Holy Spirit, who when they see someone who is lost in sin, is able to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Not judge them to eviscerate their work, but to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now again, caveat. There are all kinds of complex situations in which these truths are very difficult to uh, apply. So certainly global politics, I have no idea, you know, what Israelis and Palestinians, how they're supposed to do this. That would take a professional ethicist. And similarly, if you are in a relationship with someone or you know someone in a relationship where there's been long-term harm, damage done in a relationship, it'd be a very painful thing. It's important not to apply these words in like, you know, step-by-step, you know, color thing. It's like you need a professional therapist to get in and help people understand how this wisdom applies in an extraordinarily knotted up situation. But in general, let's all embrace the call that Jesus' desire for us and promised to empower us is for relationships that are condemnation-free, judgment-free, full of grace. So there's more to say here, but I want to invite us just to ponder for a moment. Is there some relationship in your life that's not flourishing because of an unholy judgment in your heart? Might have been a judgment you gave voice to. Might be a judgment you give voice to a lot. Might be just a judgment that you hold in your heart and you think it with increasing intensity. What would it mean for you to open that space of your heart to the movement? to the oil, to the healing work of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's move on from that. There's a colorful saying that Jesus makes, Matthew 7, 6, do not give to what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Colorful, colorful statement. Uh, Early Christians applied uh, these colorful words to the sharing of the gospel, sharing of the news of Jesus' love. So, in uh, that framework, uh, dogs and swine would be like, you know, non-Christian peoples, you know, unclean peoples. So, you know, Roman swine or Gentile, you know, non-Jewish dogs, unclean people. The pearls would be the pearl of the gospel. You know, that comes in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus. Can, considers the word of his love and his reign in the world to be like a precious pearl. And Jesus tells his disciples that they aren't to preach the news of his love in foreign lands just yet until the Holy Spirit comes. So he's not making a statement about the worth of these other nations or even the uncleanness of them. He's just saying that the Holy Spirit is not doing that yet. He's gathering up the children of Israel So that's traditionally how this verse has been understood. And I think we could take them uh, simply as an encouragement for us to not be pushy and coercive in our communication. It's to say that we all have pearls, things that are precious to us, things that seem wise to us. That's doubly so if you're a parent, right? We have wisdom that young people need to hear. And Jesus is saying... Slow down there and be attentive to the Holy Spirit's timing in these things, just as the disciples of old were called to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's timing. Be attentive to what is helpful to the other. The pig can't wear pearls. The pig can't eat the pearls. They just make him mad. So don't give them to him. So, you know, Sometimes small group gatherings become insufferable because we're not listening well enough. There are people, sometimes they're the leaders, sometimes there's someone else in the group that just has all this knowledge, all this wisdom, all these pearls to offer. You know, And it's like, it's not that interesting. You know, it's not a good meeting. Okay? Pay attention to the people around you and attend to what is right for the moment in the sight of the Holy Spirit. So the call here is, to relationships marked by attentiveness, attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, attentiveness to the other. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 says that the right word at the right time is like a custom-made piece of jewelry. What would it be like if our instincts were calibrated in this manner, that we could be the kinds of people who give the right word at the right time? And I want to ask us to consider again, according to this short verse, is there some relationship you are in that would be helped if you could just chill out a little bit? <laughs> not saying your pearls aren't precious. Not saying your insight is not astounding in its insight. It's just saying maybe not now. Maybe you don't need to be heard right now. Maybe it would be okay to be patient. Maybe it would be okay to acknowledge that there might be something going on in the heart of the other that would be more helpful if you could attend to that rather than then unfold the beauty of your wisdom. Okay. All right, so two negative commands. Judge not, do not cast your pearls towards swine. And then one positive vision to close with, verses 7 through 12. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asked for bread, would give a stone? Or if the child asked for a fish, would give a snake? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then the grand closing, verse 12, Jesus says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. After all this complex teaching, Jesus says, it's really not all that hard, friends. You all, you, all, you don't have to be a Bible scholar, you all know what to do. I find it very interesting that this imagery about the door, asking, seeking, and knocking, uh, you know, it it flows towards an articulation of what prayer to God is like. But it's interesting to me that it flows most naturally from instruction about how we relate to one another. And I would suggest that before it's a metaphor for prayer, it's a metaphor also for good etiquette, good manners in the kingdom of God. The flow of Jesus' instruction then would be to say, that we are to resist the fleshly human urge to manipulate others by our judgment and coercion, and we are instead to honor the agency of other people by simply asking them questions, asking them questions. That is a vulnerable thing to do, but we can live in that vulnerability of honoring the agency of the other because we live in the presence of a God who is good who ultimately hears our prayers and is moving in our midst. So Jesus goes from like this extraordinary spiritual teaching to the most practical of instruction. You have someone in your small group or your group of friends who talks too much. It's possible to be irritated by them. It's possible to make judgments about how self-centered they are. It's possible to talk in the corner of the room behind their back Possible to create all sorts of tension that way. And Jesus, I think, here is saying, you should just ask them to talk less. You know, if you just meet them where they are and ask them to talk less, it would probably go better. Or if you're having potluck, you know, there's always someone that never brings the main dish. You know, it's the eighth potluck that you've been in. They haven't brought anything other than French bread, you know, and (laughs) soda. It's possible to make a judgment about. What kind of, were they raised in a barn, you know? (laughs) It's possible to pre-process with all the other people in the group and talk about what is wrong with these people and did their mom or father not, you know, raise them correctly. Or you could just ask them to bring the main dish next time, you know? Ask them to bring the main dish next time. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the most natural setting. And we can treat one another with that sort of dignity, even if it's not earned. It might be that they're slightly, you know, selfish. That might be the case. But the spiritual insight that is being offered here is that Jesus is always in our midst. And so we treat one another in a certain way. This insight comes from the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany in the 1940s which meant that he was around during the time of Nazi Germany, uh, he said this. He said that Christ is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man. Now, he's writing in the 1940s, so he's he not enlightened like us about gender inclusion. So let me read it for us. Bonhoeffer's saying Christ is the mediator, not only between God and us, but between us and one another. And Because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with them. So Bonhoeffer is saying a couple of things that are important for us to embrace as we close. Bonhoeffer is saying in all our relationships in the body of Christ, Christ is present. Christ does stand between us. He is facilitating relationship with one another. It's what it means that he is the mediator. He is making it possible for sinful human beings to live in love, and oh, how we need him as mediator to facilitate that love. And Bonhoeffer says these surprising words at the end. I dare not desire direct fellowship with him. German souls, very like sober, dark souls. But Bonhoeffer, I think, is saying here that there, he has a sober assessment about himself as a sinful human being a sober assessment about his capacity to say and do things that really are harmful to another. I think Bonhoeffer is saying that he's aware that he is prone to wield the knife. And he is also saying that he is a sober assessment about the vulnerability of the other in the fellowship, that the other might be more vulnerable than we possibly know. And so how we need Christ as mediator to stand in our midst to be the facilitator, to be the healer, to be the translator, the interpreter, to be the one who brings divisive people together. I saw this most beautifully in my experience of a ministry called Oriented to Love. Oriented to Love is a long weekend dialogue of 12 people who have different experiences of their sexuality. So some queer identifying, some straight, these 12 people all have differing theologies, different thoughts about what it is that God approves of, three full days together, locked in a room. We're not locked in a room, but yeah. <laughs> If you've been around this conversation, I think you might be able to imagine what's possible there. It's possible for there to be judgments aplenty. That person's not serious about scripture. That person's homophobic. It's possible for there to be people who have pearls aplenty. The Hebrew word for abomination really means this. The Greek word for whatever really means this. And in the midst of the oriented to love dialogue with 12 people who are naturally inclined to make judgments and to cast pearls, the agreement is to ask, to seek, and to knock. To grant one another agency to honor the dignity of the other, even the other with whom we disagree. To ask, would you tell me your story? To ask, would you listen a little bit more carefully to my story and how it is that I have been hurt in this context? It is not an easy space to be in. It is not a comfortable space. And the result isn't often agreement, like, oh, in three days, and now my mind is totally changed. I see it just the way you see it. But the result is, most often, increasing wisdom, going away with a sense that it's like, it's probably important for me to know that as I move forward. I'm a better human being for knowing that. And there is even increasing love. There is even increasing love, even amongst people who don't see things the same way. One year I was there and there was a person who put his foot in his mouth quite a few times. And people were really struggling to love that person, but they chose to along the way over and over and over again. And then in this pasture I saw on social media that that person, the person who stuck his foot in his mouth over and over again, had a family death, lost someone by suicide. And the outpouring of love from people who saw things so differently, the expressions of tenderness and kindness, The expressions of affection and care, they seem to me, even though they were only on social media, as expressions of the kingdom of God, where love and mercy triumph over judgment, not because we're so awesome, but because the presence of the mediator is with us, helping us understand, helping us see, helping us give ourselves to one another in the way that Christ gave himself to us so that we can be God's people of peace. And if it's possible there in Oriented to Love, which you may or may not want to go to, I say it's possible here in our small group gatherings and in our circle of friends. And to the extent that it's possible here in mundane, ordinary circumstances, navigating parenting styles and potlucks, to the extent that it's possible for us to build relationships of increasing shalom, we will have something to say to the violent world around us. And our activism in the world will be backed by evidence that the cross of Christ has made a difference in our lives. Amen? Let's stand. I want to invite the worship team to come forward and lead us in worship. And I'd just like to lead us in a moment of prayer. You have listened to a lot of words patiently. Let's just welcome the light now of God's Holy Spirit to shine in our hearts and minds. And in the midst of the many things that we've heard, I wonder if there is just one thing that Jesus is asking of you today. I was struck in my own preparation and prayer about Dallas Willard's imagery of judgment as a knife, as an instrument of violence that does great damage, and I wonder if there are some of us here who might own up to the fact that we are the wielders of that weapon. And maybe it's because it's the only defense we feel like we've had. We've been overwhelmed, but we're wielding it still. Today could be a day to lay aside that weapon. There are people praying over? on the wall to your left, and if you're wrestling with something, I'd encourage you to receive prayer or just to kneel at the foot of the cross and to place your life under the light and mercy of the cross. And I suspect there are others of us here who have been wounded by the knifing judgment of others. And I know that that pain is a terrible pain. And if you are carrying wounds today, I say that you are in the presence of the God who heals. So again, let yourself receive prayer. Let yourself receive of the mercy of God. Lord, we need you. We long for you. We need these words to not just be words of instruction for us to heed. We need them to come with your presence to lead, guide, and to restore Let that begin in this space, we pray in Jesus' name.